Hey everybody, it's just kind of dawning on me that I'm going to have to record something quirky and cute for the first 15 seconds of every episode of this podcast every week moving forward. Wow, can't wait to see how that goes. Enjoy this new episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast. Hey everybody, Ned Buskirk here, your host today and ongoing for this Creatively Conscious Mortality podcast. We have reached a new stage in the history of the podcast. 2023 has meant a commitment from us to doing weekly episodes, and boy am I grateful for conversations I get to have like this in this episode more often because we need to pump them out weekly. What a project to be involved in that definitely changes me and my life. So thanks for listening. If you're joining us for the first time, what the heck are you in for? This is a Creatively Conscious Mortality podcast for a Creatively Conscious Mortality nonprofit. Much of what we do is making room for these hard facts and eventualities of our life. And this podcast is a place to have intimate, I think, precious, moving conversations, meaningful informative conversations about all things related to mortality and loss and grief and death and dying. And this episode is no exception. So before I get into a definitive introduction of our guest in this episode, I want to say what has really stuck with me from the conversation I had with Lisa Wells. And it is this idea about hospice and the power of hospice. Now, it's not the hospice you think I'm talking about. As an example, if you listen to an episode a few weeks back with hospice nurse Julie, that's not exactly the hospice I'm talking about. In fact, the hospice I'm talking about, that kind of hospice falls under the category of the hospice I'm talking about today. What does it mean to hospice something that is at an end? And that could be a human being or it could be the world. And that's my segue here into introducing this episode's guest, Lisa Wells. Lisa Wells is the author of Believers Making a Life at the End of the World. When we're talking about her book, that's the book we're talking about. And I highly recommend it. And we'll do so on the other side of this conversation at the end of the episode. But for now, Lisa Wells is also a finalist for the 2022 Penn E.O. Wilson Literary Science Writing Award. Her debut collection of poetry, The Fix, won the Iowa Poetry Prize. You can find her essays in Granta, N Plus One, The New York Times, and in Orion Magazine, where she writes the column Abundant Noise. Her most recent article for Harper's Magazine on death, denial, and human composting, which I highly recommend, appears in the Best American Science and Nature Writing for 2022. I hope this episode matters to you and offers you a little bit of what you need, both what you came here to get listening to the show and what you maybe didn't expect to get listening to this particular conversation. Enjoy this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with Lisa Wells. So when I was a kid, um, and this predates my interest in wilderness survival, which is, part, you know, in my book, I write a, a lot about this, you know, formative experience at a wilderness survival slash nature awareness school. Um, but when I was a little kid and then on through my life, I had early and frequent encounters with death and for a person of my age and privilege, I would say I've known an inordinate number of people to die um, occasionally from old age, but often from, you know, they have untimely deaths, you know, mm -hmm. suicide, drug overdose, accidents, cancer. Mm -hmm. um, and very early on, 
this, I don't know if that engendered a preoccupation with my own death mm-hmm. or if that's just, I mean, we know this is sort of natural for kids at various developmental stages, but I became, you know, I started ruminating on death and, and very early I detected that this was a taboo subject that the adults were uncomfortable <laughs> talking about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, I don't think that's a unique experience, Mm-mm. but I learned, I learned to keep it to myself. Basically, this was not a topic for that was a polite conversation. And, you know, if you back up from it, even an inch, it's very strange that a universal experience, not just for human beings, but for every entity on earth and beyond would become taboo to talk about. And it was only once I reached adulthood myself that I kind of, the light bulb went off and I understood um, that my parents were not just my parents, but the adults around me didn't have a framework for, or story for understanding and making meaning of and navigating death themselves. Right. Yeah. Um, it was a frightening topic for them for that reason. And this is supposed to be the role of culture. Hmm. Our cultures are like meta parents that create the structures, rituals, traditions, et cetera, that we need to live successfully in and with the world. Mm -hmm. And if you're coming out of a culture that is rooted and I, you know, spoiler alert at the end of believers, which is a book about, um, outliers who are sort of living, you know, visionary or radical lives in service of the earth. I come to the conclusion that the psycho spiritual root of the ecological collapse we're experiencing now connects to death denial and that this is the oldest story in, you know, what we call the West. I mean, you know, this is in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is, was the first written story in our culture. Um, that, you know, in that story, we learned that if you refuse death, there will be disastrous consequences for future generations. And, the story even includes like natural disasters. So um, it's right. very prophetic in that way. Yeah, um, you say your line that the consequences of resisting death. That's like, I feel like that's a quote from the, the end of, of the book around the Gilgamesh uh, telling. Right. The consequences of resisting death f- for one generation, if one mm-hmm. generation attempts to insulate themselves from this natural process, which is also by the way, linked inextricably to immortality in nature, um, then the consequences will mean death in the long run for everyone else. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that we're living it. Um, but, uh, one thing I learned from all the people I write about in my book, um, is this idea that, which of course, many quote unquote, sustainable cultures, I'm not wild about that world, but word, but cultures who have been able to live sort of indefinitely in relationship with their ecosystems, let's say, or if they're nomadic, Mm. multiple ecosystems, Mm -hmm. what they have in common is this idea that human beings are beneficial contributors to the earth, just Mm. like every other species. And, you know, that you, in order to have that worldview, you have to have ways, the culture has to supply ways of dealing with death that are make meaning because in order to live intergenerationally, right? Like if your cultural worldview is based on thinking about what is going to best serve generations, you know, two, three, four, five, six, seven generations in the future, you have to come to peace with your own impermanence. Yeah. And um, if you don't do that, then you can't think intergenerationally. You certainly can't design a lifestyle that will serve future generations. And Mm -hmm. so I think that's for those of us inhabitants of the dominant culture, that's what we've inherited. And that's what I think there's sort of a, a sea change, um, in our thinking about trying to figure out how to recover ways of making a life that serve life. Yeah. You say even at the end there of your book too, you talk about meaning and death, um, coming down to legacy. Uh, and, and I feel like even hearing you say it, I can see in my notes the the death death sandwiches the whole book. Yeah, it's like you just described a version of it talking with me, but 
it's like you're talking about Matt's death at the very beginning, and then you're talking about the death of some of these people, you know, that you've met and write about in the book, and it and it really sort of surprised. Like then I was like, uh, it's here all the way through. Obviously, I'm reading it because I'm thinking I'm going to talk to Lisa. I want to be able to connect this book to the mortality. Um, but there's a way, and it really like was was really tender to get to that ending because you write about those people in a way that's, um, for me anyway, finishing the book, it was like I was finishing <laughs> like a really wonderful fiction novel. Not to say, I'm not saying it was lost on me, the power of the reality, the nonfiction reality of these things, but it felt that way. Like I'd lived through this drama of these people's lives and work. And, and it really accents, I think, the point of, of believers, you know, or one of them or all of them. But, uh, seeing it now too more clearly and, and looking at my notes and knowing, you know, at the end, even you say talking about future generations, depending on our love. I, I love this line. You say a love that sits at the dying person's bedside. I think that's, that's one of the ways you describe it. And it feels yeah. like, I'd love to hear you talk about that. <laughs> I, I want to focus on that line. Cause what, you know, what is that metaphor for the being alive and knowing we're going to die? Whose bedside are we sitting at the side of? Is it our own or <laughs> is it those that, that we've left behind? And so there's a tending to the future from that place. I, I'm curious if you can say more about that. Hmm. Um, yeah, thank you. Hmm. For everything you just said. I, well, I was actually quoting one of the subjects in the book, which is um, a guy named Ched Myers, who was a, um, who is one of these uh, sort of environmentally minded Christians. I don't, I don't think you would balk at that description. It's kind uh -huh. of simplistic, uh -huh. but, um, and he, he, talk to me about this in relationship to this idea that these kind of eco Christian folks have around covenant covenanting. And this is of course an extant idea in Christianity for those who don't know. Um, but in their, you know, in the way they kind of formulate things to make a covenant with, let's say a piece of land or an ecosystem or a community or you know, within the context of a marriage or a family or something like that. Um, you are choosing to commit. I think in his language, he says you, ch you choose to commit to something as an expression of limits um, because life can flourish within that limit. And I think if you're a poet, you're already familiar with this kind of energy of the dialectic of constraint and freedom, right? Like sometimes you need a frame in order to experience the fullness of an idea. Mm. Um, and, um, I feel the need to say that I don't, I don't mean this kind of commitment as like a synonymous with monogamy or something like that. It's like, it's beyond the way that we <laughs> conceptualize relationships for the most part, but, um, yeah. Okay. You know, so, I'm sticking by this piece of land. I'm going to stick by um, these people yeah. in sickness and in health, you know, whether it's ugly and, you know, mm. whether or not there are carcinogens and whether or not, um, you know, I have any hope of saving right. the whole world yes. forever. Okay, like, good. Yes. Thank I'm you. going to serve the earth, mm. not based on some projection I have of my probable success rate yeah. in, in whatever, I'm going to commit to that which gives me life because this is, I mean, my suspicion is this is just how we're built um, as, a, as a species and how every other species on this planet is built, that we are designed to give life to that which gives us life. And that this is, when I said the only possibility for immortality on earth is through this intergenerational mindset, um, you don't have to look very far to see it. Like, you know, we die and we become this um, decomposed matter that then becomes life-giving to something else. And, um, you know, that's basic ecology. And it's also written into all of our oldest stories, including the Abrahamic traditions. You know, like Aviva Zornberg talks about the rabbi 
or aunt, well, I don't know if she's a rabbi actually, but she's a, um, a, a scholar of, of um, the Torah anyway. And she talks about when Moses meets God as the burning bush, it's a mistranslation, the I am that I am, mm. uh, that it, what it actually says is I will be who I will be. Mm. And she says that's kind of a way of slipping the, the, you know, I'm, I'm going to slip the signifier or whatever. Like I'm not going to be, um, whatever name you give me. Mm. But what struck me when I heard her say that is this idea of the fire that consumes, you know, the, the fire that burns without consuming itself is a metaphor for the natural world, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, in dying, we give life to the future and there's no other way to get there. Yeah. You can't give life without dying. Um, so cryogenically freeze your head if you must. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you're not going to rewrite the laws of nature. Well, I think with that, you know, it's like they're still dying, you know, like freeze your head. But somehow you're just it's it's in it. It's in in us. It's in our DNA. Uh, and I just want to acknowledge that it comes up a lot. in Does spaces. Yeah, yeah, especially in the Bay Area. But this idea of like, what can we do to clearly it's a movement, right? Just like, what can we do to like stop yeah. death from occurring but just like well there's just other versions of death you know we can't even think like death is the human body whatever there's other deaths too that we're asking for if we do something like that so i just want to i just want to stamp that that yeah comment. yeah yeah um but but to to really not hit people so hard over the head with the metaphor it does feel like to me reading your book it's something i wanted to bring up and i feel like you're touching on it here there is a you know the end of the world is already here. Yeah. And and our being in relationship with that, like sitting at the bedside of a dying loved one. Yeah. How are we in that relationship? And that feels like what you you get to through the book, but by the end with that particular line. Yeah. Return to that. Yeah. Well, and how do you feed? I mean, my ethics are like I can hold multiple perspectives. <laughs> Yeah. We're hard to be able to hold multiple perspectives at the same yeah. time. So I, you know, I, I, I saw a guy, um, I think his name is Harry Williams, who at a documentary screening in Tucson while I was researching the book. And he, he, um, he was helping fight for uh, the return of water to the Bishop Paiute people. Um <laughs> And I think he said something in the Q&A like, you know, I'm not worried about the earth. She'll shake us off like fleas. You know, I'm worried about whether or not we can live here. And so, Mm. you know, yes, I believe life will continue in one form or another and what a comfort that is. And Mm -hmm. also I feel that my, if I have any kind of like hard and fast spiritual or ethical belief, it is that um, it's a beautiful place to live still and um that for untold generations our ancestors lived in such a way that um would feed the world so that our lives would become possible so they dreamed us into being and um i think the least we can do no matter how bleak and dire the outlook might be is to serve in whatever way feels, you know, most nourishing and life-giving to us, those generations who would still like to come, you know, human and non, all the babies of all the species who would still like an opportunity to live here, you know? Um, Like it's our turn to dream. Yeah, it's our turn to dream. I would say it feels really good to hear you, Lisa, say that. (laughs) There's a question that is not fair that I've been wanting to ask, but it connects to me telling you my story of getting to the first stage of you're going to die, let's say, and starting that event series that led to so much of this other stuff. It's like there's part of me holding, speaking of holding multiple perspectives that doesn't really get the point, (laughs) you know, like I still feel that. And so my version, the question I'm asking comes from there, which is. I, I'm just like blown away 
at the miracle that you could live through what you talk about, both personally, what you've lived through in the book, some of that that you touch on, but even being in these conversations, talking with these people, being in these communities, and somehow being a point in your life where you could give, speaking of babies, give birth to a book and give birth to a baby, you know, <laughs> like what, what, what it's like, I, I, I don't know what else that, I don't even know what the question is. It's like, I want to yeah. acknowledge that and wonder what you can say about, feel like you already have kind of, but oh, um, thank you here now, after all that to get to this place, you know, um, it, it almost seems miraculous. It does feel miraculous. Thank you. Yeah. It's all tied up together too. I think, um, well, the first thing I'll say, and I don't know if this is going to feel like related, I think I'll get to how it's related, but okay, yeah. I have, I'm a, I've had a very unique life and I think I am a person who faced some unique challenges, um, growing up, but, and certainly through, you know, always. <laughs> you, you, said it, you said it, you said, you uh, said, uh, I couldn't keep anyone I love alive. Yeah. Yeah. But I've also received so much, and that's going to sound like I'm blowing sunshine up, I don't know, <laughs> the listener's ass, my own ass. <laughs> Multiple, um, many asses. Yeah, but I I had a lot of aloe parents who came into my life through the arts, and even some of my older friends that I met in high school, I dropped out of high school, but, you know, like I was, my friend Maria was a senior when I was a freshman, I think. She was the first, one of the first people I lived with once I was out on my own. And she taught me how to clean a closet and, you know, how to, mm-hmm. how to cook a meal. And I just, I feel like, um, and I had theater teachers and writing teachers all throughout my life, people who really s- stepped in and for whatever reason, just like I was, I was sort of a professional stray and, um, and I've also just experienced a lot of luck. I mean, I've, I feel like I've been in so many amazing situations with so many wonderful people that have helped me along the way. So, um, survived some, yeah, I mean, <laughs> and a lot of the dead, a lot of the dead folks, you know, mm. I would, I would say some of the most influential people in my life have now passed to the other mm-hmm. side. A lot of whom I haven't even written about, you know, mm, right. um, yeah. including, just two weeks before my book was published, my only sibling and sister. Mm. Um, and I'm so sorry. Yeah. Thanks. And I, I do write about her son, my eldest nephew. He died um, from a fentanyl overdose right. in 2016. And this sort of precipitated her death because mm. she, you know, like a lot of parents who lose their kids just couldn't live, live yeah. with the reality afterward. But yeah. um, mm. that's a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's been, it's been a lot. And I think one of the liberating aspects of having experienced so much loss early on is that, um, I have this sense and I hope this won't sound grim, uh, because it doesn't feel grim to me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That, I'm game. <laughs> <laughs> that my life is, I'm just not as invested in my own life. Like I'm not as interested in my own survival anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, that has kind of transferred to um, my desire to see, well, my son flourish, of course, but also, um, you know, to keep trying to serve future generations in whatever way I can. Well, if I could just interject and say that part of that is dependent on you also secondarily, sure, but like tending to your life. Yeah. 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 Well, like, you know, you know my so it's friend, like both. You get the you get the like it's not as important as these other lives, and it needs to be <laughs> taken care of for those other lives, especially your son, but but future generations, of course. Yeah. And I'll say that my ability to give birth to my son was also totally um coupled to my ability to confront death. And and this, I mean, it was a very strange experience, if you don't mind me sharing I, an anecdote. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, And I hope one day to write about this, because I, but I, I just haven't, like, yeah, I don't know. I think I'm waiting for there to be a little more time and distance. But in 2018, it was Mother's Day, in fact, um, my spouse and I came downstairs. We were going to go pick up his mom and take her to brunch. And... Um, I even wore a dress this morning and 
we came outside. <laughs> that, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> just, you're you're letting us know that I'm setting that's the scene here. Uncommon. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it wasn't so much uncommon, but you'll understand in a minute. So okay, okay. I came outside, and all of my neighbors were standing in the street. We live on a relatively busy street, and directing traffic around some mm. kind of spectacle. And um, it, as we got closer, it became clear that there were two um, raccoons who'd been struck, and They'd called animal control. It was an unseasonably hot day and animal control just wasn't coming. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to put on my gardening gloves and move these beings out of the road Mm. and into our like, you know, grassy median area. So I did that um, in my dress Uh and they're very, I'd never held a raccoon before. They're quite large and heavy at like, like almost like a domestic dog. Mm -hmm. And, um, and there was just, you know, a special energy attached to these beings. Like they hadn't, they weren't completely gone yet, you know? Yeah. And um, anyway, then I took off the gloves and we got in the car and left. And, um, but I really wanted to bury them and my, and Josh talked me out of it. Cause he's like that you do uh-huh. understand the depth and width of the holes that you're going <laughs> to Like, I don't think you really have an appreciation. Um <laughs> Like, I guess we need sometimes when people like us are swept away and, and yeah. like, the, <laughs> yeah. So the animal control doesn't come because it's like 85 degrees in May and there are 90 or something. And, um, they're trying to save living dogs that are trapped in cars or whatever. Yeah. And, and so they're out there for several days. And I had oh, that wow. experience that anyone who sits with a corpse for long enough does. Yeah where you see the transformation begin to happen. So, Mm. you know, whatever animating energy was there had left and then slowly they're starting to kind of come apart, you know, and flies arrive and different creatures arrive and start to disassemble them. And, um, and there was, in, in seeing that and seeing, uh, you're pregnant. Well, then, well, then I became pregnant. After oh, that. Wow. But there was something about that experience that brought me right to the threshold of death and birth at the same time. Mm. And I became obsessed. It was like I was infected with this obsession. And I, you know, studied home funeral after that and was like looking into becoming a death doula. And I was also thinking about becoming a birth doula. So, you know, it was actually, I I didn't have much of a meta process about it at the time, but I just was like bit with the bug of dealing with um, the thresholds of, of, of being a mortal being. Um, Did you connect that? I'm sorry if I, if you're like, stop interrupting me, but I no no Okay. I just want to ask, if you connected the, those deaths, is it multiple raccoons? Yeah, two. Yeah. Do you were you connecting those deaths to the threshold of birth before you got pregnant, or do you just feel like that and then you got pregnant had you digging into this like thresholds exploration? <laughs> no, I was more interested no in death, mm-hmm. but I will say in retrospect, um, we spoke to our neighbor across the street who had seen the whole thing unfold in the middle of the night. And what he described is, is kind of a harrowing story. So sensitive ears beware, but, um, there was a family of three actually crossing the road and one got hit. And then the partner came out and tried to drag their loved one to safety when they got hit by the other direction of traffic. Mm. Meanwhile, the child, the baby raccoon stood by screaming. And so, um, uh, how does this equate to wanting to have a child? <laughs> I think you I may think, have been beyond the point of no return, maybe by by then. Or <laughs> I think I I think there's something about dying to. I mean, there are a lot of people who probably have more highfalutin poetic ideas about this, but um, you know, I think I had maybe not an uncommon, but felt novel to me experience where um, I had to die as an individual in mm. order to enter this phase of life where I'm, um, my primary interest is not in myself, but in mm. this other being. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that it's like that for all parents, nor that it should be. But for me, uh, that's, that's what it was. It's like, I yeah. had to stop caring so much about my own individual 
fortunes. Hey, everybody, it's Ned, just doing our usual moment to request your support. But before I get to that, I want to accent this episode's request with an acknowledgement for those of you that have already supported the show. And I don't know those of you out there that have shared it, but I can tell based on this increased numbers of listeners and ratings and reviews that it is spreading And so that's a big thank you to all of you. I can see through the ratings and reviews, the good words and the stars that seem to say you're listening and it matters and you're grateful. And so this is gratitude right back at you for taking the time to do that. If you haven't yet and you keep saying, you know what, I will the next episode, the next episode, or if this is your first episode and you're already feeling like it's mattered, even in the littlest way, worth five stars in Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please, if you wouldn't mind, just take the time real quick during this little interlude and the interview conversation to go into your app and click the stars. And if it gives you an option to share some words, please do that. Like Lila said, here on Apple Podcasts, I love listening to stuff that inspires my mind and heart into a space of self-reflection. This podcast is poignant and moving. The, the title of that is Tickles My Brain. So uh, thanks to Lila Said for sharing those words. And you can expect to hear us sharing your words if you put a review into Apple Podcasts especially. So if you're listening through that app, we're reading them. Thank you. And then I also want to take a moment to do what we promised, which is anytime we get a new patron, in our patreon.com forward slash YG2D. All these links, by the way, are in the show notes. We want to make sure to acknowledge the people that have committed to giving us a little bit of funding every month to support this podcast being in the world. So I want to say thank you to Jillian Frobe and Jonah Newell. Thank you so much. Your contribution every month, it absolutely makes a difference. And to all of you who are listening, who suddenly are like, you know what? I can tell this matters to him. I, I, I You know what? I, I have to go and give them a rating and review or become a patron or share this episode with a friend or the podcast in general with a friend. Do it. Trust. Trust those feelings. Trust yourself feeling compelled now as I wholeheartedly request your support and remind all of you that it matters, but more than anything, what matters more than anything really truly is that you're listening. It feels so good to see our numbers proving that the podcast internationally is going into ears and people care and seem to be wanting more and more of it. And it's spreading just in the last couple weeks, you're listening has got us into the top 200 listen podcast in multiple charts all over the world. Over 10 different top 100, top 200 episodes, top 100, top 200 podcasts in general, in mental health, in health and wellness. So thank you so much for the listening that you're doing. That, of course, matters more than anything. It matters to us that this matters to you. So grateful then to be here in your ear with You're Going to Die, the podcast. Um, was something my friend Ian Miller, the writer, told me. Um, when our friend Hannah died, she's, this is uh, Hannah Andronikova was a, a very well-known Czech writer who um, was diagnosed with aggressive breast cancer at the age of 40. And she sort of did one of these, like, I'm going to refuse treatment. 
mm. and like Kathy Acker style go, mm. you know, try alternative methods. And um, she had quite an adventure and wound up writing a book about it. And that, you know, won their big national literary award and she sort of recovered a bit, but it came back and, and she died when she was 40, I think 44. Um, but I learned so much from her experience because in the end, she, she just, she sent me this email. It's the kind of thing that, you know, um, speaking of novelization, you would expect to find in a novel, but that basically was like, here's the thing, all your words only mean anything if you live them. And if you waste today, it's gone forever. So don't, don't take it from me because I'm on, I'm taking more morphine than water at this point. And I, every day I wake up and wonder when I'm going to be out the fuck out of this body, you know, don't waste one minute of your life. And I like, that's a, you know, like what more sort of sign from the universe do you need to take, to take your life seriously than getting that email the day before your friend dies, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but when I talked to Ian about it, I was sort of lamenting that she had, felt so sure for a while that she would heal herself and didn't. And, and he was like, yeah, but she, she lived her own life and died her own death. And that's, we all die. I mean, (laughs) how is that a failure? Like death can't be a failure if we, you know, if it's inevitable. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. And like, we don't, you know, I think there's that limit to, I don't know why I keep quoting like Ethan Hawke talking about stuff. It's like, what, who is that to reference? But, but sometimes he does talk about things. I'm like, yeah, but one of the things he said in a conversation with Steve Colbert or whatever is he was asked about death and, and he said, well, I just don't think we have the DNA. I don't think I have the DNA to in me, the capacity to really understand what that means like what it means to die and i actually both feel like yeah we do have it in us and we need to do more work to like make a relationship with that part of us like death is a part of who we are and we can get answers from that part of who we are but i also love the idea that we have no um understanding really fully of what it means to die and why i'm bringing that up now is because i wonder about her your friend like the healing still was accomplished Yeah. You know, like there was healing going on. And and I think a lot about that with the cancer patients, that part of what we're getting from dying is actually healing. Like that, that's a possibility, but not in the ways our culture is like, you know, like you said, we just default to, well, you, you lost the battle, you know, your failure yeah, because you, you didn't, didn't treat the cancer and survive until by the way, you, you're going to (laughs) die. Yeah. No this, is, <laughs> this makes me think of, I just, I, maybe you've seen this <laughs> Ted, I think it's a, like one of the Ted regional talks with a doctor who for some random reason was moved into the realm of hospice, though it wasn't his plan originally. And he ended up conducting interviews with hundreds of um, dying people. And um, he just describes these situations where um, of course, we've all heard that the dying encounter their dead loved ones um, in visions or dreams toward the end. But um, the situations he was describing were like, uh, you know, you you could also easily, and I'm not saying this is a fact, but if you're a, let's say, a hardcore science atheist, you know, like this believer in science and evidence, you could also just look at it as here are situations in which there are some kind of psychological metabolization happening, mm-hmm. you know, where something that was unfinished gets finished in time, almost like there's a immune system in the dying process too. Um, yeah, that, that, so anyway, this idea that you're, that being sick or, or dying is, can be a form of healing also. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I really feel that. And I think I'm, you know, I'm trying to familiarize myself with it. Cause, cause, cause part of you're going to die existing in the world is comes from fear and uncertainty <laughs> more, more than any, any clarity, uh, or anything I can be sure of. But I think what starts to unfold out of maybe it has out of the work is a slow growing knowing that even recently a feeling that belonging is what we get. 
by the end. I think we, some of us spend a life of not belonging. And I think what waits for us, and it might even just be chemical (laughs) in our brain, our brain telling us like you belong, but that there's this experience at the end that we will all get. And, and hopefully some of us sooner than others, you know, hopefully sooner rather than later. But, um, and that's part of it, right? Doing the death and dying conversation is like, maybe we can get it sooner than when. Maybe we don't have to wait to die. Exactly. Yeah. Have belonging or Mm -hmm. to feel useful or to live. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that there's a real argument to be made for developing a relationship with your own mortality and and with death in general, not to dwell on, you know, something that's an unpleasant idea for most people or maybe Mm -hmm. not what we all want all the time, but um, that there are some, maybe it's not in your DNA to like fully reckon with that, but there certainly are, um, you know, cultural inventions that can help people to live with that reality in such a way that they're mm-hmm. not inflicting harm, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that's why so many cultures have developed these, you know, I, I write about it in that Harper's essay, the, you know, the invention of the memento mori and it's many manifestations as a way of reminding people that you're going to die so that you remember to live now. Mm. But, um, but also so that you're not enacting damaging cultural scripts like we see you know um i don't know about you but the story i heard about humanity growing up is that we're at once brilliant and innovative and like destined for the stars but on the other hand inherently destructive and um ultimately doomed so yeah that is an untenable vision Mm -hmm. of human life Mm -hmm. on both ends of the spectrum Mm -hmm. you know yeah um and obviously one of the takeaways from believers is that the story that all of these people were telling, though they were very different, is that um, not only are we not inherently destructive, but we're in fact designed um, or at a minimum capable of reversing damage and increasing biodiversity and abundance. Yes. You know, which is, this is a, an, a vision of, human relationship to the environment that's all about leaving a trace and about leaving a positive legacy. And, Mm -hmm. um, but if you're living in the other world view, it's like, of course we all love to drag on billionaires and there's plenty of good reasons to do it. But like, we also have to acknowledge that these guys are just sort of voicing an extreme of the collective of the collective story that has been told about like we're all going to have to go colonize the universe because that's what we've been doing for the last 10,000 years or whatever like dominating which is funny um, too to add add them into the mix here now because you talk about like we're meant for the stars and (laughs) there's like negative versions of that that we've experienced over the last (laughs) few years but yeah perfect yeah but it's it's like this is you know I mean if we can just bracket, I'm not saying to set it aside, but if we can just bracket, you know, all of the fucked up issues with, let's say this, you know, white male billionaire figure. Mm-hmm. Um, what I see is like, it's, there's something also very childlike about it that yeah. um, has to do with, you know, what happens when you don't, really have a meaningful story about who you are in relationship to the big story of life. And, um, if you don't have that and instead what you're offered is, you know, this sort of survival of the fittest kind of, um, social Darwinist, whatever, um, then like, I mean, it just, it's not, it's not unsurprising mm-hmm. <laughs> to me mm-hmm. that um, this sort of, you know, uninitiated child is going to lacking any better judgment or <laughs> cultural container or guidance, yeah. you know, yeah, build, build a big phallic <laughs> spaceship, you know? Um, yeah. But I do think the some of the response to it, and I feel like, this this can bring us back to your book is this and connected to the belonging conversation you know I, I wonder if all this all these stories and people especially in relationship to the natural world 
you know, you, you quote Rilke in, in, in your book, what's the line? Um, we're all falling, but there are hands here too, holding all this falling. And, um, the idea that there's place to be here, there's a place to enter here, you know, there's a place to like, you know, turn that energy around of, all right, we're going to move to Mars, I guess. Um, but like return to our belonging here. And I'm wondering if much of your work, however, you arrived at a place where you're like, I'm not as interested in my life as I am my sons or the lives to, of those to come, but that you, did you find belonging through this journey and through this work and this writing and these relationships, all of it, you know? Yeah. Thanks for saying this because I think this is a big, you know, this was sort of one of the messages that I wanted to mm. bring forth <laughs> to people, you know, not like an evangelist, but I just think that there's so much, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, um, there's so much shame and guilt around being a person, you know, being a human for most of us. I mean, obviously there are plenty of shameless people too, but, um, you know, and I think a lot of the people whose work I admire and who I think I, I probably agree with in large part in the abstract around political issues, um, but probably totally disagree with in terms of tactics and just like, <laughs> um, you know, like what are you actually making? Like, I, I don't, I don't think making people feel like shit and, and making them feel guilty and all of that is all that useful, or at least I haven't seen much impact from that. I mean, maybe a little bit here and there, but, um, to me, a much, a, a much more sort of viable story is, uh, you know, you have, you're waking up within a construct that is older than anyone else, uh, any living person on this planet. And you're at a moment in time where you can sort of leverage your life, um, you know, in service of, of the future, but it's not, you know, all of this is not your fault. Yeah. And, um, and that you do belong on earth. I mean, that is the word you belong here and your particular human efforts are, um, are needed and are useful and appreciated. And, um, yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. I think I lost track of your second, the second half of your question, but <laughs> I think that, well, I think we need to like become better. At, <laughs> I think you're, we need to become better at packaging you know, the revolution. <laughs> like, yeah, well, I think, yeah. well, I wonder, I want you to keep going with that thought, but I'm wondering, <clears throat> you're saying the second part of the question feels like it got to the belonging. Like, did you find, have you found belonging? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I've found a kind of belonging in certain respects and none at all in others. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, you're, <laughs> I belong to a lot of different <laughs> groups uh, over the course of my life. And, and I would say now, I mean, well, partly due to COVID, partly due to like what it is to be um, middle-aged in a city where I don't know many people. Um, I'm more isolated than ever, mm -hmm. but in ter uh, it, like, I think I've come to a comfortable place in, in terms of my relationship to um, life and what I feel like my work on earth is to do.
Big thanks to Lisa Wells for taking the time to chat with me. Loved her book. You got that from how I talked about it in the episode. So what else do you need to know? Just go and get it. It's called Believers, Making a Life at the End of the World. And I can't recommend it enough. Uh, I'll make sure there's a link directly to her website and whatever else I can give you to give you easy access to getting that book. That's the main thing you can do to support Lisa right now, but also obviously find Lisa in whatever way you can. Check out the Harper's Magazine article. Again, I'll put all the links in the show notes, but big gratitude to Lisa for being a part of the show. And thanks to Nick Jana for introducing her to me. Nick Jana, hello. Hi, I'm in a yurt. Oh, (laughs) wow. That's great. What are you doing in a yurt, buddy? I'm in a yurt in Idaho and, uh, you know, doing some yurt things, but, uh, what are those? What are yurt things? (laughs) Like tea parties, you know, this this, like color immersion tea party performance. And, uh, I've just found this yurt in Idaho and that's where I am now. You know what? I want to talk a little bit. Are you doing the tea party (laughs) in the yurt right now? Like not right now, but you're using the year for the tea party tonight. Yeah. Cool. Um, I know we've talked a bit about spectrum already. Uh, I don't know that we've talked a lot about the, the tea party concept. Um, do you, do you think we've covered it enough or could you talk a little more about it in a fresh way that I feel like matters, (laughs) you know, reading about reading the book and then knowing what the tea party is in connection to the book, it feels very like in the, you're going to die wheelhouse. Oh, it's very influenced by you. And I haven't really told you that, but... um, No, you haven't. um, There is, because of the book being about ancestry and about, you know, loss and grief, it touches on a lot of things. Ultimately, it's, I think, very inspiring and encouraging is the idea. But um, I -hmm. wanted to have a performance similar to the You're Gonna Die performances where things can happen in that space that cut deeper or make you laugh more because of the door that has been opened with vulnerability and just the expectations are different than if you just show up at a bar to see a band play, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was, I've just been thinking ever since I first came to the first one, like four years ago, Mm -hmm. like, can I just bring some of that into my own performances or a way to just open up some of that nice space so that I can be in there, you know? And to mm-hmm. me, that has meant smaller shows, maximum nine people at a show. Um, things like lighting candles, serving tea, which is like a very delicate touch point for people to connect with. Mm-hmm. And starting with conversation at the beginning, that it's about different things, but sometimes it's about who are you missing right now? Who are your ancestors? Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. And I told you today, like the story you told last week about uh, Bolt, the goldfish who died too soon just because it was fresh on my mind, you know, you know, the hesitance of like trying to open a door and everybody's looking at you like my ancestors or like, what are you sure? Like, I don't know (laughs) this person, you know, I just give that as an example of like, this doesn't have to be some like huge life defining thing. Like it doesn't have to be whatever you feel like sharing. For example, like my friend just had a goldfish die and he, and it, it was really sad. And like, his name was Bolt, and I just want to mention Bolt at this ceremony, right? Now, you know, and it's yeah. really helped to open people up. And be like, oh, well, I can mention <laughs> my good. dog who died, and, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then it sometimes builds up to like my dad died, you know, like. Well, that's great. But it's been just a great little like opening. But you know, it's like fifteen mm-hmm. minutes, and then mm-hmm. I do this performance, and ideally, you know, in the reading when I mention ancestors or my grandmother or any of those things, people are already primed to be like connecting that to their life and it and it cuts deeper and and it and it just lingers more you know like that's the whole goal of it for me Mm, it's kind of it's kind of like a reverse workshop in a way where it's like the opening up is for um it's not for your own necessarily your own expression or what you say in that conversation it's Mm -hmm. so that the the words and the performance and everything gets deeper inside of you and it and ideally like transforms you in some way. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. And, um, it felt familiar before all that. And, and no, I didn't know that 
you're going to die experience for you inspired it, but it totally makes sense in the way that I'm familiar and compelled towards it. I haven't got to come to your, your show yet, this, this iteration yep. of it. And, and, um, I'm really looking forward to it and I would bet and can say on record that it makes sense. Uh, already it did for me. I've been thinking about like, you're going to die presenting it here in the Bay area. Cause it's kind of, it hasn't happened yet. I mean, you mostly have done this up in Oregon and, and elsewhere. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll circle back on that. Yeah. Can I ask one other thing? Yeah, uh, because yeah. the book felt the same way for me reading mm -hmm. the book. Did you feel like that book's always kind of been in your back of the back pocket of your heart and mind and, and then came into being just, you know, in no connection to you're going to die or do you think you're going to die and your experience working in you're going to die and coming to the shows informed the, cause I also think the book is about another event entirely. Yeah. Yeah. And that event happened before you're going to die, before I right. ever went to get, you're going to die. But it, you're going to die definitely influenced the book mm -hmm. too. And the telling it in second person and regarding the reader. And, you know, I also met my wife through you're going to die. And so like, yeah, there's a lot of inspiration there, but yeah, the, the feeling of like, this isn't just entertainment. Like it's, you know, self-help has a <laughs> weird connotation, but like, it is also a tool. Like it's not just like a story to entertain you. It's like you can find yourself in here and you can process inside of this space, even yeah. though it's a book with words that are telling a story, there's room in here for you to find yourself. You know, it feels that way. It yeah. reads that way. I mean, that's how I experienced it. Yeah. Thank you. Um, that's cool. Cool to hear you connect that. And I can't wait to go into the acknowledgements of the book and find my name in bold letters, <laughs> uh, capitalized. <laughs> as a big thing. Uh, maybe wait for <laughs> oh, the second oh, printing. Oh, okay. uh, just cause I don't want you to be like <laughs> too scared of how bold I made it. Okay. It's just normal font. All right. That's fine. Um, that's really cool. Wow. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> so let me, let me connect this to Lisa. Uh, recently before an open mic, actually you described being at a restaurant and just really enjoying probably partly just being back to some kind of version of normal, like out to dinner on your own, reading a book. And the book you were reading was Lisa's book, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm wanting to connect that, I think, pretty easily to us being inclined to enjoy the kinds of content that are, like you described for your event, kind of cut deep. And so I, I'm not sure what the question is here, but I guess I'm kind of doing another version to bring it back to Lisa of us being um, kindred spirits and that we might be more compelled than most to lean into the hard stuff. Cause the book is not a light read, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's a totally different book from mine, but it is similar in the way of what I just described where like you can bring your hard, times to the book and feel okay. And the book, the narrative of the book is not in denial of what's going on in the world, but it's also right. not like hopeless and bleak about what's going on in the world. It's like, yeah, here are little pockets of people that are doing tiny little things, acknowledging all of that's happening in the world. And I so needed to see that in a book. I, I just mm -hmm. like felt it that I needed it. And I couldn't believe that it was a friend of mine who wrote the book. And I saw it at a bookstore and it was, the cover was facing out. And I was like, yes, this, I need this, you know? Oh, wow. Yeah. Had and then you I, known her already and then you found yeah. the book? I, I knew that oh, she really? had, no, I knew oh, that okay. the book had come out and I just had yeah, to come across it. And then, wow. yeah, I got to, you're going to die show really early. And I was like, oh, I'm going to take myself out to an Italian mm -hmm. restaurant. And I read mm -hmm. the book and Frank Sinatra was playing and um, <laughs> they're bringing me my, <laughs> my What'd you uh, order? whatever, uh, go ahead, you know, ravioli. No, no, no. Rigatoni. Uh, <laughs> Let me just keep guessing. I think it was a the rice next pilaf. 10 minutes rice guess pilaf. you can. Oh, <laughs> it was a rice pilaf. Um, Damn it. And just really <laughs> enjoying a, being held in a book like that. Like that's mm. what I want. Again, it's a totally different book from mine, but like, I think she had a similar intention to be like, I'm not just lecturing you about like, here's all the way the world is dying. The ways the world is dying. Right. You know? It doesn't read that way. It's like uh, absolutely her. And as a person, she is this person of just like mm -hmm. absolutely soberly, like, look, a lot of things are fucked. I'm not going to like sugarcoat mm -hmm. this, but I'm also not going to just like despair and lie on the floor. I'm like, look at what people are doing to like actively, you know, replant, rewild, you know, like interact with nature, leave a trace as she says in a positive yeah. way. Um, so yeah, I, I love that about her book and I yeah. got to see her for the first time in like seven years 
just the other day for coffee in Seattle because oh, I was doing my show. And yeah. um, it was so great to see her and connect about mm. that. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Real, real glad that I got to meet her and have her be a part of my life now because uh, she's a part of yours. So thanks for that. Um, well, thank you, Nick. Thank you again to Lisa. Check the show notes for all the things. We'll pop uh, Nick's uh, book link in there too. So you definitely check that out. And if you're living around the Bay Area slash probably a little too late to get on board with any events coming up in the next couple of weeks, are you doing anything after this episode comes out? that people could get involved in or check out? Uh, Alaska. <laughs> Are you? I'm going to be in Anchorage, Alaska in March doing this show. Yeah. Great. Great. All right. Yeah. That's a plug for you. Anchorage. We'll, we'll come up with a Bay Area one at some point. Just looking for the right space to do it. Yeah, that's great. Can't wait. Okay. Well, thanks, Nick. Thanks everybody for listening until next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.